0: like the holiday stuff going on. I'm supposed to like go really fast. And as you can imagine, I have tried, but yet have not done a great job of paring down the content to Be faster than what it should be, but it did. And I apologize. So let me ask you a question. How many of you all have ever met somebody and they're facing really difficult circumstances and you look at their life and you go, how in the world can they be filled with such hope? How can they be filled with such resiliency? How can they be filled with such joy going through such a difficulty? Have you all ever met somebody like that? Right. And and when you meet that person, right, let me ask this question. Does that surprise you or do you just go, yeah, I expect that. Like usually it surprises us, right? Usually it surprises when we meet that neighbor, when we have that coworker, when we find someone who is, is walking through a, a relationship that has is devastatingly fallen apart, a health diagnosis, some something very tragic in their life, perhaps with a family member, and yet they kind of have this resiliency about them. They continue to care for others. They continue to have this like vibrancy and you go, what in the world is going on? Well, we're surprised by that because that's generally not the case. It's not a bad assumption though, right? To, that we would think that person goes. Going through that difficult moment should be not feeling that hopeful, right? And why do we think that? Because it's a good assumption that people who go through, let's say, very difficult circumstances or what we might say hopeless circumstances, we would kind of expect them to be a hopeless person. It's not a bad assumption because we tend to think that hopeless circumstances create hopeless people, or what we would call maybe prisoners of hopelessness, just trapped in this reality that I, they, how could they possibly feel any sense of a future, right? So if, if having hope, we've been talking about, is this three things in our lives, right? If having hope is the ability to see a better future... If having hope is the ability to see a pathway to that better future. And then the third element is having the agency, understanding my part. I have some agency in getting there, right? When a person is in a hopeless circumstance, right? right they feel like, ah, oh, there's no path forward. There's no brighter future. Maybe I don't have a sense of agency. But the question becomes like, when we see people like that, we start to ask like, do hopeless circumstances necessarily have to create hopeless people? Like our lived experience tells us, well, that's not the case. And I would say that's the advantage of faith. That's the advantage of the spirituality of hope. Now that person may not have faith the way you have it, but there's a spirituality to this idea that there's more to life than what I can produce on my own. And we all face dire circumstances. We all face them in our lives. We face those moments where we we lack agency, we lack a pathway. But does that mean you have to become a helpless person? Does it mean that we're truly just left on our own and it is what it is? Well, to kind of think about that, I want to tell you the story this morning of a woman named Anna. Everybody say Anna. Anna. All right. Now, I want to tell you the story about Anna because Anna's circumstances, her whole life, would cause you to believe that this is a hopeless person. You would think that this would be a person who is a prisoner of hope. Yet, for her whole life, for all life, she never seems to abandon hope. It's the craziest thing. She lived with a sense of true hope, even though she had no real agency, even though she had no real sense of like what the future is going to look like. She just, so there, there's just like wait, And you, as you hear her life, you'd go, how does this person maintain? But we learned that she does. She just always carried herself with hope. Now, Anna was born about 84 years before Jesus was born. Not exactly sure how long she lived, but she was born in the year 88 BCE. So if Jesus was born somewhere around the year four, Hannah was 84, Anna, excuse me, was 84 when Jesus was born. And she lived 84 years in Jerusalem. 84 years in Jerusalem leading up to the time of Jesus. Now, what did she witness in her lifetime in Jerusalem? What was was life like for her? Well, the cool thing was she was born during an interesting time period where the Jews had independence. Nobody was oppressing them at that moment. There was no one occupying the land. So she's born in this place of freedom. And what's fascinating is when Anna was about age 13 years old, a woman named Alexandra Salome became queen of Israel. There's only three queens ever in the history of Israel. And in Anna's lifetime, this woman becomes queen. And she reigns for about 10 years. So she sees, she kind of grows up in her like teen years and into her early 20s, she grows up seeing a woman in power in a patriarchal society. And about, you know, maybe three or four years into into that time, Anna's 15, 16 years old, she gets married. So she gets married. She's uh, living in this space of Jerusalem. They're in independence. There's a queen on the throne. It's quite a unique time. But then what happens in around the year 67 BCE, Hannah was probably about 21 years old, maybe 23, 24. The queen dies. And when she dies, it creates a power vacuum, as you can imagine in antiquity. And her two sons, they start going after it. And this bloody civil war ensues. And one of the sons, whose name is Hercanus, he's kind of really vying for things. And he wants it. And so this, this civil war is taking place. She's living right in the middle of it, right there in Jerusalem, not sure what's going on. Well, the Romans see this as going on. And Pompey, who's traveling around, doing his thing, conquering, creating Roman colonies, well, he hears about this, and the brothers start vying for Pompey's, like, support. And Pompey's no dummy. He goes, you know what? I see an opportunity here. And so what happens is Pompey comes, and he takes the city by force. He brings the Roman soldiers with him. Anna's living there, her husband is there, and he comes and he takes over Jerusalem, takes the temple, and Hyrcanus had colluded with Pompey so that he could get the throne, and that's exactly what happened. He's made high priest, he's given this title Ethnarch, which means national leader, and so now Anna is living in an occupied world The queen is dead, her son is in charge, she's been married seven years, and in that overthrow, when Pompey comes, her husband is killed. And now she's a widow. Been married seven years in a patriarchal world, now occupied by the Romans, she's a widow. Life's not going so great. It's not working out. Now the Romans are there every day reminding her of the death of her husband. In her society, in her world, Right, this idea of protection, of care. And what does she do? Well, she just throws herself into the temple. She just begins to worship. She goes to the temple every day. She finds her existence there. Now Anna's in her 30s. How many of y'all you remember your 30s? John, John started to, he was like, nope, not even close, right? <laughs> right? How many of you are in your 30s? Raise your hand up nice and high. Just be nice and proud. Good for you. Super happy. Or even happier for those of you that are in your 20s and can still get out of bed without thinking about it. I have to have a plan of action when I get out of bed. I'm like, all right, this leg first. <laughs> Brace for the back, right? So Anna's 30, in her 30s, widowed now for probably 15 years, somewhere in there. And another upheaval happens, and Rome comes under civil war. And you've probably heard about this one. This is a civil war between Pompey and Julius Caesar, right? And so things get hot and heavy all throughout the region. Massive Roman civil war. And Julius Caesar defeats Pompey. Woo, yay, go Julius. Now, what we find out is that Hyrcanus uh, and his like, stooge, if I can use that word, a guy named Antipater, you might know him as Herod the Great's father, they colluded with Julius Caesar, and they were like, they were, like with him, so they get to stay in power. Julius Caesar comes, and he continues to like, support Hyrcanus, but what he does is he kind of recognizes this Hyrcanus guy's kind of a buffoon. And so what he does is he puts Antipater really in charge, gives him the title regent. Now remember, Anna's living in Jerusalem. All this tumult is taking place. Leadership, who's actually in charge? Is it Hyrcanus? Is it Antipater? They're both kind of sleazy, not great leaders for the people. What do we do? Well, Julius Caesar comes into some problems. I don't know if you're familiar with this, the Ides of March. Julius Caesar is assassinated by the Senate. They didn't appreciate his tactics, so they all stabbed him once. at two. brutai. Remember that one? Now, you can imagine that doesn't bode well for all of the Roman provinces. Now there's a big power vacuum. And now people want to do what? They want to avenge Julius Caesar's assassination. And to do that, it's very expensive. And so what happens is Rome goes to all of its provinces and says, guess what? You're going to fund this. And so at that point in time, Anna's living in Jerusalem and all of Judea has to pay about 15,000 kilograms of silver to Rome just to fund this work to avenge Julius Caesar. Do you think Anna cares much about Julius Caesar? Probably not. But it affects her deeply because now as a widow, she's even taxed even greater. And oppression is sitting in and this is all happening about 36 years before Jesus is born in Jerusalem. Well, it's happening in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. I understand that was a dangling par- participle phrase. I shouldn't have put it there. Should have put it earlier in the sentence, my bad. All right, so now Anna's in her 40s, okay? Now she's in her 40s and what's happened? Well, Antipater, who he goes and like taxes the people and is pretty ruthless in trying to get all this silver, he's killed. People say, none of that. <laughs> We're not doing that. We don't want any of that, right? You're not gonna do that to us, right? So Antipater is killed. And now there's this like vacuum power, right? Still happening. All in Jerusalem and Rome, what's happening? What's going on? What are we going to do? She's in her late 40s and guess what? Another war breaks out. And this is a war between the Parthians and the Romans. Now, a little geography for you. For that battle to take place, they had to go through, you guessed it, Jerusalem. So you've got armies marching through all the time. You've got Rome Battle. The Parthians come and they take Hyrcanus prisoner. They take him back to Babylon. They're like, we got your guy. (laughs) And I'm sure Anna was like, yeah, big deal. Who really cares? But again, there's this big power vacuum. Now who's in charge? Now, here's the thing. When Anna's nearly 50 years old, in the year 37 BCE, things get really bad. Like imagine what I just told you about her life. Now it gets bad because the Romans, they conquer the Parthians. They win. Yay! Now, what happens, though, who's in charge of Jerusalem? Who's in charge of Judea? Nobody really knows. Well, Herod, the great son of Antipater, sees his opportunity, so he shows back up in Jerusalem with two Roman legions and takes the temple in a bloody battle, the temple in which Anna goes to every day. Every day she worships. Every day she tries to survive. And so Herod comes in now, and Herod the Great sets himself up as king of the Jews. I mean, it's the highest title you could ever get under Roman authority. And so in 37, life really gets bad for her. Six years later, we find that Anna is in her mid-50s, living through a major earthquake that hits the area. So you've got political issues, you've got war, you've got poverty, And now you have an earthquake that comes and destroys homes and buildings and property all throughout Jerusalem. And well, Herod's going to be the savior of everyone. So what does he do? He taxes the people and he begins massive building projects. So the temple is kind of expanded and rebuilt. Homes are being rebuilt. And so the next three decades of Anna's life under Herod the Great would just be filled with poverty and oppression. Because to make it all work, Herod would do extraordinarily brutal things. Brutal things. Oftentimes he would rule with mercenaries. He would hire mercenaries that would come. He'd have secret police that would go throughout Jerusalem or hometown. And and the people knew this. They knew this is not a good idea, right? He goes, like Herod the Great, goes down and gets Hyrcanus out of the Parthians, right? The guy who was like exiled. So he goes back and gets him just to execute him in front of the people. Murders three of his kids and one of his wives because he thinks they're gonna take power. This is what Anna's living under. Fear, aggression. Herod the Great was known for just resorting to violence and all kinds of measures that would just produce fear and lead by fear to keep everybody in control. And it was clear to Anna and everybody else that this Herod was no Jew. (laughs) He wasn't for the people. He was a Roman king. He was a Roman puppet. He was like best buddies with a guy named Agrippa who was like Augustus's right-hand man, Caesar's. He was known for hanging out and he was this friend of the emperor, did all kinds of crazy things. In fact, when he rebuilt the temple, on the temple gate that you'd have to walk into, you know what Herod the Great tried to do? He tried to take the golden eagle of Rome and he put it on the temple gate as the symbol and power. Well, it did not go well. (laughs) People did not like that. Now remember, this is the temple in which Anna would go to every day and worship. Having been widowed now for 60 years, She comes in and she works, but she's this Roman eagle there and the people don't like it. And so what do they do? They tear it down and it causes another big stir up, a big problem. All this is happening. All that's going on. I mean, the people started recognizing, hey, like stuff from our tombs are being stolen by the Romans. They were raiding tombs, doing all kinds of lavish, unbelievable things. And this is the life that Anna has lived. Yet somehow with all these things out of control, she doesn't lose hope. She has about as little agency as any person could ever have in their life. She's been a widow now. By the time we meet her in Scripture for, I don't know, 65 years? 60 years, maybe? 65, like in a patriarchal world. She's living under this power structure and fear. But yet we find her in Scripture and she is not at any loss of hope. She wasn't a prisoner of hopelessness. She was actually what Scripture calls a prisoner of hope. I love that phrase. The prophet Zechariah in the Hebrew scriptures gives us this phrase and he uses it to describe the people that were living in exile. So their homeland, the temple had been destroyed, they were taken into exile. And in exile, they are considered prisoners of hope, right? They're chained with hopeless circumstances but they're also chained by this persistent longing for God in their lives, for God to be at work. They're chained to others who share the same vision. And as they've sat in exile now for decade after decade after decade, the prophetic voice of uh, Zechariah says this, says, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. I declare I will restore to you double. The prophet is saying like the time has come, let's go. Let's move forward. We've been prisoners of hope. Now it's time to take our actions to go and to watch what God will do through us. And that's what Anna was in her circumstances, a prisoner of hope. You know, we wouldn't know anything about Anna if it weren't for Luke's story of the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter two, verse 36 through 38, it says, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. Like, can we pause there for a second? Like, think about her life and what she's been through. And she's a prophet in a patriarchal world, like representing the vision of God for the nation in the temple court. It says she was of great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. So probably a widow for 60 years. And, and, and I would say that's a hopeless circumstance, right? Anna, just like those exiles, Anna was chained to hopeless circumstances. Patriarchy, poverty, natural disasters, violence, fear, uncertainty. And what was her response? What did she do with 80 years of violence? What did she do with that? This is what it says in the text. She never left the temple but she worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, she probably left, okay, everybody? (laughs) This is saying, like, you know, you ever get mad at your spouse and you say you always do something or you never do something? This is like that. (laughs) Not true. This was the key component of her life, what Luke is telling us. This is what she did daily. She would go in and she would worship there. And she would stay connected. Why? Because she was chained to the power of the presence of God. Even in the midst of her circumstances, there was something about Anna that says, this is where I have to be. And and all she knew was the temple, right? That's what her culture had told her. This is where God was. So that's what she does. So for 70 years, she gets as close as her culture would allow her to to God. The only way she knew how. And then the text goes on and it says, and at that moment. That's a big phrase when you're 84 years old, widowed for 60, 65 of it, coming every day to the temple, living under poverty, living under war, and then all of a sudden it says at that moment. So what was going on at that moment? Well, according to Luke, this couple from Nazareth had traveled down to Bethlehem, had a baby. There wasn't any room in any guest house, so they were kind of in somebody's like, you know, barn or something, and they had this baby, and then all of a sudden some shepherds are out in the field. Angels start singing to him. The shepherds come and see this baby that was born in a manger. That's what Luke tells us happened. And eight days later, according to tradition, the baby is named. The baby's circumcised. And then 33 days later, according to the law and tradition, they would leave Bethlehem and head home, but they would go through Jerusalem because there were two rituals that that they would have to go through. Right? And so Luke uses these two rituals to move the drama forward. One ritual deals with the, the consecration of the firstborn. Right? So the firstborn, it goes back to the story of Exodus. You would bring your firstborn child. You'd present them at the temple because the idea was the firstborn was God's. And so you would redeem the firstborn from service in the temple. The Levites would take care of the temple. So you'd pay a fee. That's what would happen. Some of you are like, well, church hasn't changed much, Ryan. I'm going to refer you back to 15 minutes ago, Right. So you'd pay basically a day's wage, five shekels or 20 denarii. Today, what that would be is $1,638. Do you know how much baby dedications cost here? Zero. That's a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. $1,638. Imagine if we did this in Colorado. Last year in Colorado, there were about 62,300 births. That's $102 million in tax revenue. That's pretty smart. I say that to say that's what's going on here. People are living their lives. This is how things are funded, the temple. It, we can't just think of it as religion. This was, this was a tax. This was how they funded things, right? So, so you have to go and redeem the firstborn from service in the temple. So instead of them coming and, and, and serving in the temple their whole life, you pay this fee now that you get to take them home. Some of you are like, 1600 bucks, I could have left my kid here? What the heck, I'm in, right? The second was the purification of the mother, because according to Jewish law uh, and ancient Jewish law, at least, um, you had to wait 40 days after giving birth and you'd come and you'd present yourself at the sanctuary. You'd bring a gift. You'd bring a lamb and a pigeon. And if you couldn't afford both, you'd bring two turtle doves and a partridge. And a, just the two doves is what you bring, right? And so that's what's happening in this moment. Mary and Joseph have showed up. They're at the temple. And while they're there, there's another guy named Simeon who shows up. And Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his hands. And he's like, whoa, this is amazing. I know exactly what's happening. And the text says, he says, Master, he's talking to God, he's praying. He says, you're dismissing your servant in peace. He was an older guy. He says, I can die now in peace because according to what you've spoken to me, according to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for the presence of all these people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. That's what Luke is saying is being recognized in this moment. And Anna is there, right there, doing what she had done every day of her widowed life amidst war, poverty, famine, earthquake. She's there waiting. She's there worshiping. She's a prophet. She's hanging. She's, what is going on? What's happening? She sees it all happening. And the text says, at that moment, she came and began to praise God. And she spoke to all the people about the child who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I love that phrase. All the people who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, not only was Anna chained to hopeless circumstances, not only was she chained to the the power of a divine presence, but she was chained to others who had a vision for a better future. And they called it the redemption of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was their home. It was where they loved, it was their space, but it was also the source of their pain and struggle and it was the object of her hope. But she wasn't alone in her longing, she wasn't alone. She was an example for others. She was a leader for those who were longing for redemption of their home and restoration of their freedom, right? So like in a sense, in that temple courtyard where she was allowed to go every day, she was standing in a prison yard of hope. Trapped by hope. And remember, Mary and Joseph are there in that moment alongside in this prison yard of hope, redeeming Jesus, their son, their firstborn son. In Exodus chapter 4, Israel is called the firstborn of God. And what Luke wants us to know is that Anna, with her prophetic vision, sees in this moment this beautiful metaphor that God is redeeming Israel from the oppression of this world, is redeeming Israel in Jesus. Luke is telling us that there is a pathway There's a pathway in Anna's heart and mind now for a redemption, that there is one who will come and bring rescue and salvation. At 84 years old, a widow of 67 years, living under patriarchy and poverty, oppression, war, natural disasters, waiting, 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 trusting, trusting, going to the temple day after day, praying, worshiping, and as a prisoner of hope, she embodies what Paul says in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction and persevere in prayer. And that's what it means to be a prisoner of hope. So don't miss this, all right? Prisoners of hope, we show patience in affliction, like Anna did. We show perseverance in prayer, in in, in waiting for, in listening to, in longing for the divine to work through us and among us. And we anticipate that there will be a time for rejoicing. And so in your everyday normal life, how do you live as a prisoner of hope? And this is what I want you to begin to think and consider. In just a moment, we're going to have communion together and sing and pause. And here's what I want, just to, I want to encourage you with. Think about these things as you're having communion today. Consider them in your life. To live as a prisoner of hope means to remember that hopeless circumstances do not create hopeless people. It doesn't have to go that way. You do not have to be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. There is a spirituality of hope that says you don't have to walk alone. There's power in the divine presence and it's available to you. And then when those hopeless circumstances come in and you feel like there is no pathway or you feel like there's no agency, we can be reminded of Anna and her life and what she endured and what she lived through and the hope and the resiliency that she still had, not because she had agency, not because she had a pathway, but because she had faith. And so remember, prisoners of hope consistently seek the power of the divine presence. For Anna, that meant going to the temple In our world that can mean prayer, serving, worshiping, coming to worship services like this, spiritual reading, listening to podcasts, doing whatever we have to do to stay connected, to keep our minds where the letter to the Philippians says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So what in your life puts your mind there in the midst of the hopeless circumstances? In our Fresh Perspective material, we talk about faith. And in that material, we say faith is not just this ascent to ideas and doctrines. Faith is trust, it's fidelity, it's vision. A person of faith trusts in the divine, is faithful to a relationship with that divine, and has a vision to see the divine as good, nurturing, and life-giving. In their book, Hope Rising, which is a wonderful, wonderful book, talks about the science of hope, the authors dedicate a chapter to folks of faith. So while they're writing from a science perspective, they take a whole chapter talk about the power of faith and hope. And this is what they said. They said, people of faith also have an advantage. I love that. No matter what you face, no matter how big the challenge, you can know that God is bigger than what you're facing. And that's an advantage. That means hopeless circumstances don't have to create hopeless people. And if we live this out, right, if we live this out, I want to encourage you to connect with others who share, <laughs> connect with others who share your circumstances and your vision. If you feel that your circumstance is hopeless, your marriage is in trouble, your, your relationship has ended, there's a death in your life, whatever it might be, find a community of people that share your circumstances, but also share your vision, Listen, you ever heard the phrase, misery loves company? Right? But so does hope. So does hope. And if we're not careful, we can just get into a group of people that are in our circumstances, and then that becomes misery, and then we do become hopeless. But if we can get with a group of people that share our circumstances and our vision that there is a better future, and our belief that there is a divine presence that can help us get there, well, now hope will flourish. So it's not just sharing your circumstances. That just creates a prison yard of hopelessness. But when you share your vision and your circumstances, that'll create a prison yard of hope. And that's a good space to be. And that's a choice that we make. And when we start making those choices, the world does become a better place. We do become better people because here's the deal, prisoners of hope inspire strength and perseverance. We have two, three sentences of Anna and history. And when we put that together, we see resiliency, we see an example of what can be in the midst of hopeless circumstances. And we're inspired to our own strength and we're inspired to perseverance. So I want to invite you to stand this morning. As we receive communion, please remind it, everyone is welcome to these tables. There's no membership class. There's no under, this, this is a representation of God's universal love. The universal love that is God for all of us. And so what is it that this universal love is inviting you into today as you come and receive the bread and receive the juice as reminders of God's love? Maybe it's to rediscover a faith you can love. Maybe something has happened in your life and and there's just a loss and there's a sense of hopelessness in your own faith journey. Well, I want to encourage you to check out the Fresh Perspective group. There's one that's starting up in January. Maybe that's what God's inviting you into, that you can rediscover a faith that you can love that can help you and sustain you and, and be with you. Maybe you sense the divine encouraging to establish a spiritual practice or some spiritual practice that can keep you connected to the power of the divine presence. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Anna went to the temple every day. And, and I don't think it's, a, it's like just a throwaway that we get that detail, given her life, given what she was going through, how deeply connected she stayed to the divine. And so to keep connected, we need those habits. You don't have to come here every day. Please don't. We have things to do. (laughs) But listen to a good podcast. Re-listen to this message over and over and over again, sure to make your life better. But what can you do every day to pause, reflect, pray, be mindful of what God is doing around you? Maybe you sense a whisper to look for other hopeful people experiencing similar hopeless circumstances. So let's take a few moments, we'll sing, we'll have communion together, then we'll do some holidays from around the world. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Come, eat and drink as a remembrance of the divine universal love for all eight billion people on this planet.